Good morning again, especially to people that have just arrived. I appreciated the introduction from, uh, from Cliff. I would just like you to delete the words meditation master from <laughs> the record, though. Um, I definitely would not describe myself as a meditation master, more of a, a dabbler. On one retreat that I was leading, somebody said that it was quite obvious that I spent a lot of time on my meditation going off-piste, by which she meant uh, you know, departing from the way that I'd been taught the meditation practice and doing a bit of experimentation and finding out what works and then bringing that back into the meditation practice again. And then um, you know, sharing that with, with other people and finding out what works for them, sometimes learning new well, tricks, perhaps isn't the right word, new, new approaches, and then reintegrating those into my practice as well. So um, what I'm teaching you today is uh, it's just arisen out of quite a number of years of, of experimentation. And uh, you know, jhana is one of these things that I've been exploring for quite some time. Um, I, I think I started seriously exploring how to, to get into jhana back in the uh, mid to, to late 90s. Um, it had always been one of those things that intrigued me. Uh, people talked about the jhanas. It sounded wonderful. Uh, it sounded a bit unattainable. Um, but then sometimes I would go on a retreat and it would just, it would just happen, uh, you know, quite magically. Suddenly there I was in this, you know, beautiful state of joy and relaxation and effortless focus. And I didn't really know how it got there. People who found it easy to get there usually weren't very good at explaining <laughs> how they got there either. <laughs> Sometimes my meditation students would somehow get there. They would have the best sit of their lives and then they would sit down in the next meditation and try to recreate the experience and it wouldn't happen. And then they would have the worst sit of their lives. <laughs> because they were so despondent. They were trying so hard to recreate that experience. And it doesn't really come about by, by trying. It comes about more by letting go, uh, by letting things happen. So the, the aim for today is to help introduce you to some ways that you can let it happen or let it begin to happen and to, to break down a number of steps that we can go through. Um, three, effectively three different steps in letting Diana happen. It may or may not happen for you today and that really isn't particularly important. Uh, if it does, and, and it's not uncommon in yeah, even a, a three or four hour workshop to some people, for some people to come in uh, feeling frazzled and to start experiencing some jhana before the end. So it's not, it's not uncommon, it does happen. 
But the, the most important thing is uh, learning some tools that help you to bring a bit more calmness, uh, a bit more embodiedness, and a bit more joy into your meditation practice. And there's, you know, there's good reasons for why you might not experience jhana today. I'm talking about a collection of skills, and it does take time to practice skills, uh, to internalize them. And you might have brought all kinds of stuff with you today, you know, emotional turmoil or tiredness, and uh, it might take quite a bit of time for the emotional turmoil to die down. And if you're tired, well, you know, you know what that's like. You're just sitting, meditating, trying to meditate and, uh, and nodding. But as I say, that's, that's all okay. As long as we're, you know, as long as you're leaving here feeling that you gain some, some tools, I will be happy. So I'd like to, to do a bit of uh, demystification of dhyana, first of all. And in modern psychological terms, we would talk about dhyana as being a flow state. So you're almost certainly familiar with the word flow. And uh, I believe this uh, concept in psychology was first developed by... Uh, forget his name right, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Right, yes, right. <laughs> I could just basically make a random collection of syllables and most people would, would not know. So he, he wrote a book called Flow and he said that people are happiest when they're in this state of effortless concentration of complete uh, absorption in an activity at hand. And uh, there's a number of characteristics of, of flow. Um, one is that our emotions are positive. Uh, they're contained, so we're not you know, anxious and you know, the mind is not running around anxiously or craving about something, like craving after something. Uh, we're not angry about anything. Uh, it's, a, it's an enjoyable, state. Um, so here's an interesting quote. The hallmark of flow is a feeling of spontaneous joy, even rapture, while performing a task. It's very interesting because those words joy and rapture are very often used to describe jhana. The mind is relatively calm, so there's not a lot of mind wandering going on. We're attending to the task in hand. Very interesting thing, and this is going to, we're going to return to this throughout today. The task that we're doing when we're in a state of flow, and, and this flow can happen when we're doing sports or playing video games or when we're you know, in a, a deep conversation with, with someone. Um, the task in a state of flow should be mildly challenging. It should stretch us. There should be a slight sense of effort, kind of a gentle effort to stay engaged with the task. Uh, if we don't have enough to do, then flow doesn't happen. 
If we don't have enough to do, then the mind will find things to do. So it starts creating, it starts creating distractions. Yeah. So it's a state of flow. And it's an interesting state of flow because, you know, what is the task in jhana? Um, the task in jhana is being aware of your experience, which in jhana is, well, state of being in jhana. So your task in jhana is to be aware of being in jhana. And it's the kind of um, positive feedback loop that, that we get into. Uh, the stages that I'm, I'm going to lead you through are, first of all, calming the mind, learning how to calm the mind which sounds, well, that's what we're all doing, isn't it? That's what we've been doing meditation for years, trying to calm our, calm our minds. Um, there's a few techniques that I've stumbled across that uh, most people find very useful in calming the mind. And having calmed the mind, we can enter more deeply into the body because we're not continually going away into thought. Uh, our attention can engage more, more deeply in the body and we can begin to notice some of the fascinating detail of the body, some of the subtler experiences that are going on. And we can enjoy doing all of this. So we've got calmness, we've got this embodied state of uh, pleasurableness, pleasurable energy. And we're enjoying doing all of this. And we enjoy the calmness, we enjoy the experience of the body, so all of that is joy and it's supporting, it's all self-supporting. It's a really uh, crucial part of Buddhist practice, traditionally speaking. So I'm going to um, read you a famous quote uh, from, the, from the scriptures. So this is the very well-known passage from the scriptures where the Buddha is describing uh, having entered jhana as a child and how crucial that was to his awakening experience. So this is happening just before his awakening and he's given up all of these ascetic practices, realizing that that is not the way to awakening and he doesn't know what the way to awakening is. And he says, I recall once when my father, the Sakyan, was working and I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree, then quite secluded from sensuality, secluded from unskillful mental qualities, I entered and remained in the first jhana, with rapture and pleasure born of seclusion, accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. We'll come back to all those things. Could that be the path to awakening? Then following on that memory came the realization that is the path to awakening. So it's a very strong statement. Uh, the Buddha also said that there's no insight for one without dhyana. On the other hand, he also said there's no dhyana for one without insight. <laughs> Those two things support each other. But often we see it as uh, very unattainable. Um, in fact, even traditionally, it's seen as being very unattainable. It, that is not the case in the early Buddhist scriptures. There's you know, lots of descriptions, not just a, a, well, there's lots of descriptions of people going and doing dhyana. There's lots of descriptions of people going and getting awakened. 
and uh, those things over time seemed to become harder to do perhaps as you know some vitality seeped out of the tradition and it became more scholastic I'm talking about the tradition becoming scholastic about a thousand years after after the Buddha there's a a famous Indian writer who lived in Sri Lanka called uh, Buddhaghosa who wrote uh, an enormous uh, compendium about uh, practice about about the Dharma and I think people think of uh, Buddhaghosa as being a meditation master but he probably wasn't a meditation master either um, in fact in his major work, the uh, Visuddhimagga, the Path of Purification, uh, he talks about how monasteries are really terrible places to meditate. You basically can't meditate in a monastery, is what he, what he says. There's, too, just, there's just too much going on. There's, center, there's centers of administration, there's people coming and going all the time, people don't have, there's all these duties that you've got to perform. They, they don't have time to, med- to meditate. In fact, um, the monastery that Buddhaghosa uh, practiced in had consciously decided several hundred years before to give up on meditation practice, uh, which sounds like a crazy thing to do, but it wasn't really. There were, there were very, very turbulent times. There were civil wars, uh, there were famines, there was pestilence, all kinds of stuff going on. At one point, all of the monks had to evacuate Sri Lanka and go to India because there was so much uh, trouble going on. And their main task was preserving the Dharma, preserving the, preserving the texts. And so that's what the, the several hundred years before Buddhaghosa, they consciously decided that they were going to f- prioritize keeping the texts alive, keeping, this, uh, keeping the teachings alive, rather than trying to practice their, their contents. So he didn't necessarily, Buddhaghosa didn't necessarily do any dhyana, but he was working from earlier uh, texts uh, that were describing them. Uh, some of those earlier texts may not have been written by people who did jhana either, but may have been, you know, again. And there's a lot of this actually goes on, really. I mean, to, to, <laughs> to this day. How often we, you know, we teach things that we've been taught, you know, without necessarily having you know, mastered them ourselves. So, uh, you know, Buddhaghosa, by the time Buddhaghosa is around, and this is a thousand years after the Buddha, Jhana uh, is seen as being pretty much unattainable. Uh, he says that only one person in a million can attain first jhana, which is, I don't know, that's not many people. So, statistically, it would be very unlikely if any of us were, were together. And, uh, yeah, there's, we can develop a strange relationship with, with jhana. As I say, it could be this wonderful, exciting thing that we want to get to, or we might decide it's a load of rubbish. You know, we don't, it's not necessary, can't get there anyway. So, you know, we've got the whole sour grapes thing. Um, <laughs> if, I, if I can't eat the grapes, they must be sour anyway. Um, <laughs> and there's, uh, you know, there's some currents of, uh, of teaching in Buddhist tradition that uh, say that jhana is dangerous. And there's none of that in the early scriptures. There's no place in the early scriptures where it said that jhana is dangerous or a distraction uh, to, the, to the spiritual path. It's seen as being integral to, to the spiritual path. But later on, uh, people start seeing it as being a, a distraction. You become intoxicated with all the pleasures 
of, of jhana and that prevents you from um, from pursuing insight. And I, for me, the thing is, excuse me, <coughs> to, for me, the thing is, you know, how, what have we been taught about getting into jhana? I mean, when it when it first happened to me, um, it was just completely hit or miss. I think it's the same with, with most of us. We get taught how to cultivate mindfulness in lots of different ways. You know, principally, sit down, pay attention to your breathing. Uh, we get taught how to cultivate loving kindness and compassion. You know, call somebody to mind. Bear in mind that they are a feeling being just as you are, that they, they suffer just as you do, that they have happiness just as you do. Develop this empathy and wish them well and wish yourself well. So we get taught how to do that, but what do we get taught about, about jhana? Usually nothing. I did get taught a, a little about it early on, but it tended to focus on uh, the hindrances, the five hindrances to jhana. And I'd imagine you, most of you will be familiar with those. Uh, but the hindrances are five different mental activities that make it impossible for us to be happy. So we can crave after things, or we can be angry about things. Or we can be anxious about things. There's a one of the hindrances is is traditionally called sloth and torpor, but I th I think actually it's more to do with the sort of heavy sinking, despairing feeling you get when you really don't want to do something. You know, there's some task on your planner that you really ought to do, and every time you look at it, it's like oh, and this is sort of turning away, and it's. I think it's often like that, you know, when we're falling asleep, it's actually that it's like, oh, <laughs> I don't want to engage with this. Um, and there's doubt as well. So there's uh, craving, there's ill will, there's anxiety, there's sloth and torpor, and there's, there's doubt. And so I was taught various ways for dealing with those, but, and you know, the, some of those techniques definitely helped, but it's very much focusing on the negatives. It's focusing on what stops you from getting into jhana rather than actually, you know, how to get into it. And that's what I became interested in. Just one more thing about, uh, about jhana. Some of the, the language can be a bit off-putting, so I'm going to try to normalize some of the terms that are used. Um, very often terms that are used are things like rapture and bliss, which again sound very, uh, <laughs> very exalted and very unattainable. I'm going to try to bring those down to earth a bit. For me, things started changing, uh, as I said, back in the uh, mid to late 90s, as I started uh, reflecting on the, the, the jhana factors. So I'm going to read the traditional description of first jhana. So a bhikkhu, detached from sensuality, detached from unwholesome states, having entered in the first jhana, remains therein with vitaka, or initial thought, with vichara, or sustained thought, piti, which is often translated as rapture, I'll call it pleasurable sensations in the body, and with sukha, which is joy engendered by detachment. <clears throat> 
So I'll do a little bit of translation of this and uh, explain how I understand these terms. This is not the only way to understand these terms. So, a bhikkhu, meditator, detached, detached from sensuality. In other words, sitting for meditation with your eyes closed, so you're no longer doing stuff in the world. Detached from unwholesome states, so having let go of distracted thoughts and you know, emotional preoccupations. Having entered the first jhana, so there are four jhanas, and we're going to concern ourselves today really just with what we need to do to get to the, the first jhana. So the meditator remains therein with uh, vitaka. Uh, there's different schools of thought about what these, these terms mean. But uh, what I was taught uh, was that vitaka and vichara are two different kinds of thinking. And um, vitaka is what's called uh, an, initial, an initial thought. So it's just like a thought that pops into the mind. Yeah or that you deliberately uh, bring into the mind. So if you say, may I be well, or may all beings be well in meditation, that's, uh, that's an initial thought. It's not going anywhere. It just stands alone. Yeah? Um, vichara is a sustained thought. So that's more a series of connected thoughts, like a reflection example and if any of you have ever counted your breathing in meditation then that's an example a very simple example of a sustained thought what you're trying to do uh, when you're counting your breathing in meditation is to sustain your attention and part of that involves uh, creating the series of thoughts you know one two three etc is is a sustained thought so it occurred to me that this is the kind of thinking that goes on when the mind is relatively calm. When the mind is relatively calm, we're able to have a thought pop up and we don't go anywhere with it. The thought just appears and then it's gone. It's there for just a moment. And we don't do anything with it. We're not getting engaged with it. We're not turning it into a distraction. And sustained thought is where we do have a, a, a train of thought going on, but it's, it's coherent um, and, and it's mindful. We're mindful what's going on. So it's not distracted thinking. It's the kind of thinking where we, we bring something in and we kind of mull it over in a conscious way and then we let go of it because we no longer need to, to do that anymore. So, it's the, so these two are the kind of thinking that we do when, when we're calm. So that's going to be our first task of today, is getting a bit better, hopefully, at calming the mind. And then there's piti. Uh, piti is a lovely word. It, it describes something we don't really have a word for in, in English. Uh, it's translated often as rapture, which I, I think is very off-putting. I would think of it just as the pleasurable sensations that arise in the body when we're relaxed and attentive. So the body can, when it's relaxing, uh, can feel uh, pleasurable. I'll come back and say a bit more about that. 
So that's our second task, you know, having let go of some of our uh, mental preoccupations, not having stopped thinking altogether, but having at least created some calmness, having uh, calmed the mind a bit, we enter the body more deeply and we're more attentive to uh, pleasurable sensations, well, all sensations, but especially pleasurable sensations taking place in the body. And then sukha is often translated as bliss, which again, I think is kind of unhelpful. Um, I would just think of it as joy, just, you know, being happy. So that's our, that's our third task, our third step, is uh, just enjoying this process of letting go of thinking, of uh, calming the mind, enjoying the process of connecting with the body and noticing the, the subtlety that's going on there. So, having kind of that, that first step of having realized that Vitaka and Vichara are what are going on when the mind is relatively calm, made me kind of realize, hey, you don't have to treat the jhana factors as something that just happened, that kind of let you know when you're in jhana. What if you use them as, as a basis for jhana? What if you see them as being the path to, to jhana? Which is what I've been describing. I've been describing this flow, bringing about calmness, getting more deeply into the body, enjoying all of that happening. And then you've got all of the jhana factors present. So that made a, that made a big difference to me. It gave me a, a sense of how one might work toward jhana. And I'll just say one more thing about these. Since we've got calmness, we've got I'm just going to use the word PT a lot. So just remember PT, this uh, pleasurable sense of, of the body when you're attentive and, and relaxed. So we've got calmness, we've got PT, and we've got joy. So we've got a mental factor, the, the sense of what the mind is like when it's calm. We've got a physical factor. You know, what is the body like when it's relaxed and we're attentive to it? And we've got an emotional factor. You know, what is the what's the heart like uh, when we're enjoying and appreciative of of our experience? So it is this kind of complete experience, uh, our whole being, uh, mental, physical, and emotional, all kind of like you know brought into a kind of a, a unity. There's only one one other thing that often we need to do after having brought together uh, calmness, pity, and, and joy, and that's to find a, a single point of, uh, of focus. Not that we're putting all of our attention on that single point of, of focus and losing touch with everything else. It's more like a kind of a lightly held, vivid uh, center of our experience. So it's this complete experience of our whole being and there's one thing at the middle that we're paying attention to that kind of like holds the whole thing together. And often that's something like the uh, sensation of the, the breath flowing over your nostrils. Okay, so that's kind of a, you know, an outline of where we're going to be going. Um, we'll spend quite a lot of time on developing calmness and uh, probably spend the whole morning doing that and then divide the afternoon into 
getting into pity and then you know enjoying the calmness and pity uh, as we cultivate sukha. We're doing okay for bathroom break kind of stuff. Bio breaks, I love that term. <laughs> Uh, I should talk to the audio engineer about this. Yeah, it's fine by me. Yeah. yeah, I'm used to having microphones close to my face because I uh, I speak very quietly. See, I'm from the east coast of Scotland where we're very quiet. It's only about um, yeah 50 miles from the west coast of Scotland because it's a very it's a very small country. But there's about 50 decibels difference between the way that. <laughs> East Coast Scots speak and, and the way that uh, West Coast Scots speak. So if it was for Glasgow, I'd be talking like this, you know, no problem. <laughs> How's your meditation going? <laughs> I can meditate better drunk than you can sober. <laughs> Always wanted to say that. <laughs> Little joy is a good thing, I think. All right. So, yeah, I'd like to do another little meditation. Uh, this is just going to be a short one, and it's what I call a calibration meditation.